Welcome to an Arcbender's Journal, The Last Will of Lucy Sutton. I'm your host, Terrence Franklin. In each episode, we go on an odyssey to discover my family history, and I invite guests to share their stories to bend the arc of history with their own legacy. You can find the show through YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Now please, join me for an Arcbender's Journal, The Last Will of Lucy Sutton. I'm your host, Terry Franklin. Hi, everybody. Welcome to an Arcbender's Journal. I'm Terry Franklin. I've got an eye patch on today. I have a little bit of a red eye, but I, rather than scare you with my red eye, I'm going to scare you as a pirate. But we're, we're going to go forward with our show today just because I'm so excited to have Doug Haynes on with us today. Um, uh, Doug, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Terry. Really appreciate it. We, we are so excited to have you. I've known you for a couple of years and you have some really insightful things that I think will be useful to our audience. Now, you are the Vice Provost for Academic Personnel and Academic Programs for the University of California, if I got that right. Uh, that sounds like a huge title and a big job. Uh, why don't you tell us what that means in a, in a practical sense or every day? Well, in all honesty, Terry, I'm actually learning myself because I started in October. Uh, but it's a pretty large portfolio um, in the office of the president uh, for a 10-campus university system. And I oversee um, the and steward the careers of about 70,000 individuals who support uh, and participate in our academic and research mission. Um, and so that includes about 12,000 faculty, uh, 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 professional uh, uh, scientists, uh, uh, graduate students who are also employed. Uh, so it's quite a spectrum, quite a spectrum. And, and then, you know, I have a, a, another portfolio that includes these wonderful system-wide programs, including UC Press, one of the oldest presses, academic presses in the country, uh, our uh, experiential programs in Washington, D.C., UCDC, uh, UC Sacramento, uh, as well as um, our UC President's Postdoctoral Fellowship Program. So it's a pretty broad portfolio that supports uh, uh, our future and current uh, faculty and researchers, as well as platforms for disseminating and communicating information and knowledge. That's amazing. You don't have one job. You got like 15 jobs, you know, there's an old inappropriate reference to Jamaican. You got 15, 16 jobs. I mean, especially dealing with so many people, I, I imagine that uh, people always find something to complain about. You've got all these people who uh, work with you and I, I'm sure they're not all complaining, but among that number of people, there have to be some who aren't happy, some who are at any given moment. How do you manage to um, to manage and, and, and work with so many different people and try to provide uh, the support and help that they need? I, well, I, I try to sort of approach this role with the philosophy that I'm here to help people thrive. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so that means I listen. I have to listen. 
I have to understand, you know, how um, I can help uh, folks maximize their potential, whether they are recent PhD recipients who are postdocs or new faculty or faculty at the end of their careers. Um, because the, the power of this university is the, is the talent that people bring to it. Right. And so, yeah, um, there's some rocky days, but <laughs> I really try to think about, you know, how do you sort of mobilize uh, this wonderful collection of diverse people so that they can help shape the future? Uh, because that's how it's done. Um, yeah. And so uh, I'm very grateful that, that people are patient with me uh, because my top priority is help people thrive. What I think I appreciate most about that is the idea of helping people thrive because it both speaks to the potential of every individual and, and trying to help them tap into what helps them be the best they can or to really, I believe that everybody has genius within them. And mm -hmm. um, you know, if we can find ways to help people to unlock that and to tap that, it's such a powerful thing. And um, the, the, the thriving term is one that I know that you brought to a previous uh, responsibility that, which is how, how I came to know you in the first place. Because as I recall, your former title was the, um, you, you had another big title, it was University of California, Irvine. You were the inaugural vice chancellor for equity, diversity and inclusion. And you were the chief diversity officer for UC Irvine. Another you know, huge independent university. We have this whole university system that people don't understand. But why don't you tell us a little bit about what you did in that role at UC Irvine? And, and, and thank you for asking, because I, I think in that role that I uh, began in 2019, it really was um, helping lead the university to make UCI the nation's leading inclusive excellence university. And so part of the sort of the, the, our conceptual framework was that we want to harness the university to enable people to really grow, um, learn, and impact. And so that involved doing basically four things. One, providing institutional accountability. And so that can mean who is our community? Are they thriving? How do we know and how can we improve? And that's what accountability at an institutional level is about. And so it means that we're constantly learning, that we're as much a learning organization as we are a research institution. The second is, is that we want to equip people to be agents on behalf of inclusive excellence through education and training. So it's not enough to go to a university um, and as a student or as a staff member, as a faculty member, and just assume that, you know, um, uh, this means that I'm a, 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 a person of goodwill. It may mean that, but in order to create an inclusive excellence environment, everybody needs to equip and learn about the communities that make up, in this case, UCI. 
And then the third area was responsive research. And so it's, you know, all of us are a collection of our past and, you know, we bring our own conscious experiences, but we also have biases. And so sometimes those biases are better understood when we ask questions like, why are there so few put in the blank? Um, how do we create a department or a school in which um, people aren't succeeding? Right. And so it, it's, it's very important to, to incorporate that research component. And the final element is strategic partnerships because we're not an island. Universities are organizations, but they're not an island. And so for those four areas, that's what we focused on. And out of that uh, foundation came the Black Thriving Initiative. Tell me a little bit about that. I, you, I know about it, but um, what was, what is the Black Thriving Initiative? The, the, we launched that in 2020. Uh, and I just want to let you know and your listeners know how much I, uh, how grateful I am for your support as a member of, of that board. Um, it, it's, it reflected change in continuity. I mean, before the pandemic and the um, uh, national and global protests against systemic uh, anti-Black racism, we've all been engaged in trying to improve where we live, where we work, and where we learn to create a more open and affirmative environment for all people, including Black people, right? right. Um, and often it's been a struggle to get attention, to get resources, to get a commitment to change, to get a commitment from people to use their discretion, their prerogatives, their privilege to create an environment where Black people thrive, right? Right. Too often that burden just falls on black folks. Mm -hmm. And so the context of the what was known as the racial reckoning really helped focus attention, I think, for the first time, at least in my uh, uh, experience, uh, where many people were asking the question, why? Right. And so we, um, uh, the, our chancellor, uh, Howard Gilman, and the cabinet wanted the University of California to respond, right? Not react, but respond. Hmm. There and is so a difference between responding and reacting. There is a difference, huh? Totally, totally. Too often we react and that's very taxing. Uh, it's difficult to maintain or sustain it. It's hard to hold people accountable, right? And so uh, after extensive listening and consulting with different constituencies among the staff, among students, graduate students, alums, uh, a faculty, we developed the Black Thriving Initiative whose ambition is to make UCI the nation's foremost destination for Black people to thrive. And at the core, it means that the university, that the people who comprise the university are committed to doing that that they're going to use their individual privilege, uh, prerogative, and discretion to create the conditions for Black people to thrive. That it's not, that it's not gonna happen by itself, 
right? And that it, it, it consisted of three broad action platforms to change the culture, right? Okay. And, and at the core of that, it means confronting anti-blackness, wherever teaching, learning, research takes place in and on behalf of the university. Right? So it's not just a small segment of people who are conscious and want to do something. Uh, that involved creating programming uh, for everyone to learn. That was free, right? Because not, one not thing just we, black, not just for the black people, <laughs> but exactly. for everyone to have a, an understanding and an appreciation. Exactly, because anti-blackness, you know, comes in many forms, but too often people sort of see black communities as monolithic. And they may be attentive to one form, one expression of anti-blackness, but completely have a blind spot when it comes to anti-blackness that affects the LGBTQ community, right? Uh, and so you need to both learn to equip so people can use their agency. I think the second platform focused on leveraging the research and teaching mission. And so UCI is a multi-billion dollar university. It has an outsized impact, not only in Orange County and Southern California, but also across the country and the world. And so we want to mobilize and harness that research capacity, the educational capacity to both um, um, uh, focus our efforts on understanding what are the hurdles and barriers that prevent so many black people from maximizing their potential, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Instead of blaming black communities, instead we want to leverage the university to work in partnership to address and to improve the conditions. And then the final one is to actually engage black communities. And so that means linking the success, the future, of the university to the success of black communities and black uh, people. And what that essentially means is, is that, you know, um, uh, uh, we're invested right. in their success. And so that uh, uh, initiative is still in existence. Uh, uh, we have a meeting next week. <laughs> good. Good. And, and, and what it takes above all, and, and I'm sure you know this, I'm sure your, your listeners know this, Terry, is that it really is about caring, right. Right? right? The Black Thriving Initiative is not asking anybody to be a superhero. It's not asking anybody to jeopardize their job, their relationships, their health, their life. But what we are saying is, choose to use your agency to create these conditions. You can do it, but you have to learn what anti-blackness is to change the culture. You need to understand your culture. You need to understand what capacity does your organization have, right? You know, universities aren't the only places that conduct research and teach, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And finally, black people are everywhere in the United States. Even though in Orange County, black people comprise about 2% of the general population, we have a moral obligation to create the conditions by partnering with people across the county, across the state and the country 
to create those conditions. Because for far too long, it's just been so hard, so inconsistent, um, that it always seems that we have to start anew. We can never leverage momentum. And so for that reason, I think the Black Thriving Initiative has had a, a very distinctive impact for UCI and it's affecting its trajectory. Uh, and I think that we want to scale it up. We want to scale it up so that we have a thriving mentality throughout the University of California. You know, it, it, it's an amazing uh, initiative. And I think part of it is that it feels like such a heavy lift. When the starting point, which you highlight, is awareness, really recognizing that this exists, that you know, I, I think there are people who would question the idea of whether systemic racism exists, but I know you and I have no doubt about it. Uh, we right. know that it's there and that continuing to allow things to exist as they are does not change systemic racism. It takes an actual affirmative effort to try to push back against that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I guess in that context and knowing that this really arose during 2020, uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, early on, when we were having this racial awakening uh, that people became aware of to some degree because of George Floyd's murder. But I think even then, I think I was saying, and I think you said, you know, like all efforts at moving forward, uh, every substantial effort towards uh, improving the equality of America, is typically met with some pushback, some resistance. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm wondering about both your sense about how this kind of an effort, this initiative, this Black Thriving Initiative or similar efforts like it can deal with the forces that are pushing back against it. We have anti-woke in Florida, mm -hmm. et cetera. And I'm wondering, are you optimistic and or pessimistic? And either way, how do we deal with the fact that there's this pushback whenever there's an effort, a substantial movement forward in terms of our rights and, and, and uh, reaching the American dream? I, I think that's a profound question. And it's profound because the, the, the burden is so great. I'll be very candid about that. Because the very construction of the United States of America was grounded in the subordination, subjugation, and enslavement of black people. Yep. It, it was baked into the Constitution. It shaped our legal system. It shaped our institutions. Institutions of higher education, I might add. Right. Our social organizations. And so part of the challenge has always been that black people are the first to see this contradiction. Mm -hmm. and, and, we're, and, we're, and we're responsible for trying to hold the country to the ideals that are reflected in our founding documents, but are also belied by the truths of our founding documents at the same time. Exactly. And, and so that, that burden, it translates in having to educate people while also understanding that it's a choice for other people, <laughs> that it's voluntary. That in some sense, even acknowledging the existence of these structural uh, contradictions that exist today, mm -hmm. people have a choice 
to use their agency on behalf of addressing it. Just to give you an example, a concrete example. In the state of California, black people comprise 6% of the general population. But if you look at the statewide prison system, black people comprise almost one third. Now, if you, another point of comparison is the enrollment of black undergraduates in the, ten, in the nine campus system, the University of California, uh, less than 6%. And so many people might say, well, I'm not responsible for black people in jail. Right. right? And so, you know, I'm, I support diversity. But, you know, if people want to go to the University of California, they have to, you know, compete like everybody else. Right. Right. And I think that just sets up a very challenging set of hurdles and barriers. Right. And, and so um, even though we have so much evidence of black talented men and women who are gay, straight, and transgender, we do exist. Right. right. Hello. <laughs> At the same time, getting to that point requires such an excessive amount of effort in order to navigate the very real hurdles and barriers that our blackness has to sort of deal with. Right. And, and, and there's a sense that, you know, well, you've got these bootstraps, why aren't you using those? Or, or, you know, one of the things that I think is challenging about the statistics in terms of the population versus the prison population is that I think it, it's comfortable for some people to go, well, the reason why that's true is because for some reason, black people are more prone to criminality or they don't have the skills or the capacity to be in these university environments. And I think that highlights the question of affirmative action that, that yeah. I think is, is sort of really coming along. You know, we know that the, the Supreme Court of the United States is considering a case this year that from all the tea leaves, I think would suggest uh, based on the, the, the structure of the court today, that affirmative action may not survive this this term, and uh, I was at a, a event last week for um, the uh, the new president of of my alma mater, Northwestern, my undergraduate, um, Mike Schill, who I think was the dean of the UCLA Law School at one point. And one of the points he made during the discussion was that when the law school was no longer able to take into consideration race as a factor the statistics for enrollment of African-Americans dropped precipitously. Mm -hmm. And I think there are probably some people who thought, oh, well, that's because they didn't merit or they didn't deserve to be there. And I, 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 I would love to have you give some context to that idea because I think dispelling the idea that grades are the only determinant or that SAT scores are the only thing that matter or LSATs or, or those kinds of things, I would love to have you just comment a little bit on, on this idea of merit and its value in terms of identifying those who are capable and have the potential to really make the world better. It, it, it's a choice. I, I, I'm convinced that when 
for most of the history of the United States, meritocracy has been a, a conceptual category that has served as a very convenient um, uh, way to rec reconcile contradictions, right? Because it means that people deserve a participation in a very finite resource, mm -hmm. right? And the problem with meritocracy is that it really doesn't take into account the larger environmental or social conditions that effectively distort and warp and determines who gets to participate. Mm -hmm. So uh, just, just case in point, um, when you look at uh, 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 the, the legal profession or even the medical profession, uh, these Ooh. are organizations, society that require uh, participation in college and medical school and, 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 and law school. But the costs, just the cost factors are so steep. But if you don't take into account the fact that black people as a group were denied very often opportunities in the economy to build up wealth, to uh, transmit that wealth to the next generation, mm -hmm. that it sets up a, a very steep hurdle. But there's more, even for those people who do get in, they have to deal with often the costs of organizations that really are not attentive to the consequences of anti-blackness. Mm -hmm. Case in point, I wrote an op-ed in Diverse Magazine, I think in 2021, where I talked about um, the, the, the problem of using the N-word in a classroom setting. Mm -hmm. At the time, there had been a number of instances, particularly in law schools, but also elsewhere, where it was regarded as a, a, a worthwhile pedagogical practice to- a Pedagogical to, to, tool, <laughs> right. Yeah, and the, the, the problem that I said is that, what do you think it means to a black person to be in an environment where there are so few black people to begin with? Right. And a member of the faculty use their 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 right, their <laughs> academic freedom, to vocalize this word, right? There's no evidence, there is no pedagogical research that demonstrates that the use of the N word, for example, produces better outcomes among students. Right. It doesn't make better lawyers, even though in the in the in the in the trial record there will be many references to the N word. And so I use these two examples both to talk about how there's these sort of explicit hurdles that really suppress black participation in higher education that has a knock-on effect across generations. Mm -hmm. And then within organizations that are inattentive to anti-blackness, 
those who are in those institutions may have to navigate that often by themselves. Right. Yeah, I, so, like you, I, you know, I'm also a product of predominantly white institutions, Northwestern and Harvard, or as uh, some people want to call them, historically white institutions to contrast yeah. historically black institutions. Um, but, you know, I, I was having a conversation not too long ago with uh, a colleague who had gone to UCLA and, um, and, and made a reference to the fact that someone's grades were not great. This was a person who was, who was not a traditional um, uh, white male. Um, and so the question was, the person said something like, well, you know, everybody knows the importance of freshman year, uh, first year grades and how that's gonna make a difference in terms of law review and opportunities down the road. And, and I thought when I showed up at Harvard Law School, I really didn't know what a tort was. And yet, <laughs> There were all these people in my class, and I'm not saying they were all white or they all weren't, but many of them had parents who had been lawyers generations back, who'd been hearing the law spoken of in their homes, who, who understood it in almost a somatic way, that this is the way the law works. And, and if I want to have a successful career, I need to make law review, and that means I've got to get the very top grades at the very beginning, and everything else is going to flow from that. I had no idea of that. And I think the way that my colleague was so glib about saying, well, everybody knows this as a fact, I didn't know that. Right. And so I think part of this is this discussion about making the environment a place where those of us who are not used to these experiences can be given that leg up or the assistance so that we can feel included and feel like, like, like we're able to, to benefit in the same kinds of ways. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's that tacit knowledge that basically creates institutions within institutions. <laughs> and I, I think that one of the, I think, powerful imperatives of the movement for racial justice or affirmative action is to open up organizations, schools in this case, so that they are inclusive. Right. so that they reduce or eliminate the hurdles and barriers to participation, right? So instead of saying we have a limited number of spots and therefore we're going to impose these artificial measures that actually really don't predict much, mm -hmm. instead to say we want to mobilize talented people who want to participate but that means that we have to change how we organize education, right? right. And so, you know, I, I think that in the state of California for the past 26 years, we've operated in one of the most hostile environments for diversity. Mm -hmm. Because voters of the state in 1996 voted to pass a constitutional amendment that prohibits the consideration of race, gender, national origin in state institutions for admission and hiring, right? And you're right. Once that passed, the participation of African-Americans plunged. In fact, in many ways, it hasn't recovered. Right, right. And, and, so, and, and, it, and it's not that they're not qualified or don't have the ability, but there's a sense of entitlement for those who traditionally would have gotten in to say, hey, I deserve that, so 
most people who, who aren't getting in, it's because their grades aren't good enough or, you know, it's too bad. And I would just add that I want to be very clear. I believe that it is a imperative for the United States of America to come to terms with the cost and consequences of slavery uh, 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 and racial uh, 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 and systematic anti-blackness. Mm -hmm. Affirmative action consists of a range of tools, one of which is the consideration of race among others. But I think it's also important to remember that when consideration of race was legal in the state of California, it wasn't fully utilized. Right. It really wasn't. And so I want to be really clear. There was no golden age before 1996, right? In part because it was such a struggle to open up institutions to increase participation of black men and women, right? right. Um, and so often it's very easy for people to say in California, well, only if we could use race, it would make it all better. And so now that the country is considering the prospect, at least at institutions of higher education, of the elimination of consideration of race, that will require higher education to reimagine mm -hmm. their role. And I just, and, and I'll just, I want to put a fine point on this, that when you deny black people full participation in society, it's easy to think, well, we're just denying people uh, 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 who are black. Well, you're actually denying black women. Mm -hmm. You're denying black gay people. You're denying black transgender people. You're denying uh, black poor people. You're denying the few black middle class people. What you're doing is constraining your talent pool and then justifying it in terms of meritocracy. I, I think there's sort of a separation, or at least I think you can make a distinction between excellence and this meritocracy system uh, that you know some of which you know these exams that are connected to uh, a real eugenicist kind of notion that we have to identify people and put them in a box and give them an iq and as long as it continues to match up with our expectations racially we'll continue to use those same tools or tools that are derived from them to decide who gets in and who doesn't get in and it's 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 troubling and and um you know, I, I love talking to you and knowing that you're in the position that you're in, because I think you have the ability to help make a difference and to identify and activate other people who can help make a difference too. But um, I don't know, when they asked James Baldwin if he was uh, optimistic or pessimistic about the state of Black America, about Black people in America, and he said, I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. And as long as I'm alive, that means that you know, there's the possibility of making change that that is going to make a difference. And, and I, 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 it doesn't feel like enough to take away from from yeah. these experiences, but but I often feel that way. And, and so you give me hope 
um, because you're there and you're trying to make a difference and you're helping to identify these issues and systems. But I'm wondering who inspires you? Like who tells, how, how do you know when you look at someone who says, hey, you know, there's an inspiration for me, who inspires yeah. you to keep going in, in these difficult times? Well, there's many sources, but there's one person in my life who provides that powerful sense of purpose, and that's my 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 partner uh, Cherie. And we met when we were um, uh, in the seventh grade. We both grew up in San Francisco, and I think that our life courses uh, uh, before between then and when we married in, in uh, 2015, 2015, really sort of described the possibilities that were available to black people, mm. right? Uh, because- tell me, a little, tell me a little more about that. <laughs> well, one is, I mean, we, we both went to a public school, right? Uh, in a city that for all practical purposes had to desegregate. Because I, I know a lot of people think San Francisco is this paradise of progressivism that's very diverse, but it's important to remember that it was a highly residentially segregated city Chicago where most where? black people yeah, lived in three neighborhoods, the Western Edition, Hayes Valley, and Hunters Point, right? And that the schools that we attended had to be desegregated following the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the associated legislation around public education, right? And so when we were young, we didn't know we were participating in this very powerful political movement, right? And so as we sort of have grown and gone to high school and gone to college, we sort of increasingly experienced the fact there's so few of us. There's so few of us. And so that set of common experiences is just tighten the bonds and also help us see our role and responsibility to use our agency, right? To use our agency for others. And in the process, you know, we're, we're learning more, even now, even though now I've crossed that big 6-0 threshold, I'm still learning. We're still learning. End of September for me, so I'm right behind you. <laughs> and, and I think that's important to have a partner who both understands but also challenges, right? Um, uh, because, you know, uh, it's easy just to simply say that I did it by myself, but I don't believe that. I think we are a product of a lot of people who care, some of which we've never met before. Mm -hmm. And so that caring, which is at the heart of our, of, our, of our marriage, of our partnership, I think it's so important to persist in trying to sort of uh, work with other people to create a better society for all people, and in particular to help Black people thrive. Congratulations. I'm glad that you have found that relationships that helps to support you and that also helps you, you're on the same page in terms of trying to make the world better, a better place generally, but especially for black people. And I guess as I get ready to leave you, um, <laughs> and uh, knowing how, um, how you've been inspired by Cherie, 
one of the things that's a part of this, every time I, I ask a guest this question, you know, either what are you doing to bend the arc of history towards justice, which I, I know you're doing based on what we've already talked about today, but either that or some nugget that you might give to someone else to inspire them, because all of this is about none of us being able to do this alone and needing to have others who came before us and knowing that what we do is going to make a difference for those who come after. So what would you say about trying to bend the arc of history towards justice? Uh, I, I say, first and foremost, understand that you matter, that you're loved, that someone in this world who brought you into this world imagined a future, had sufficient hope for a future, that they wanted to create you, that someone tried to create the conditions for you to thrive. And they may have been, um, it may have been imperfect, but all of us know that creating those conditions to thrive requires mindfulness. Mm -hmm. It requires discipline. And I want to be clear, I don't want anyone to jeopardize their job, their, their health, their life, their relationship, where they live, what they do. But find a way. Find a way for you to use your agency, your prerogative, your insight to improve conditions for someone. And I guess the, the final point is our community is a lot larger than we think. Mm -hmm. And that means we have to continually work to remove our own blind spots, right? The black community consists of many different types of people. Mm -hmm. And so care, use your agency and always learn about who is our community? Are they thriving? How do we know and how can we improve? And, you know, no one needs to be a superhero. You just have to be aware and engaged. I think that's so valuable and a great note to end on, you know, really that recognizing that we all have value. I don't care who you are, where you came from. And even if you think your parents were not the ones that you would have thought were the perfect ones, you are here because they brought you here and there were ancestors behind them that you will never know their names. But we're all the, 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 the manifestation of those hopes and the possibility uh, of a better world. And, and we are here in a place where we can try to help manifest a better future too. And, and your words just describe that perfectly. So Wow. I just want to thank you. For, for joining me today and for being here and taking the time out. You know, I know you're, you got 15 jobs and you got probably calling you now going, hey, hey, you're supposed to be over here over there. So I'm gonna let you go. But I wanna thank you so much, Doug, for, for, for being a part of this show. Terry, thank you. And I wanna thank you and your listeners for this opportunity to have this conversation. I'll be in touch. All right, I look forward to it, Doug. Thanks All right, thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to an Arcbender's Journal, The Last Will of Lucy Sutton. I've been your host, Terrence Franklin. You can find this show through YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts, and more. Thank you for your positive feedback, comments, questions, and for sharing this show with others. 